So we have reached the end of the first season of Star Trek Voyager. It has been a journey. It has been a short journey. Yes. Now, you said that the um, season was truncated. They took a couple of episodes and brought... My question is, did they... I, I guess this will come into play more in Learning Curve, but did they just lop two episodes off the end? So or? They, they, they filmed four additional episodes. The 37s, Elosium, Projection... No, Twisted, and Initiations, I believe. Okay. And those all appeared in the second season. Uh, they actually did not want to end the season with Learning Curve. It's a very bizarre episode to end on. I yeah, that was that that was my, one of my questions that I have for. I that. almost think that Jatrell, if they were going to make an episode to be the season finale without it actually being a season finale, may have yeah. been a better episode to go out on. But that's not the decision they made. So yeah, they basically just took four episodes and they shifted them to the line item sure. budget for the second season. Uh, and I think that Jatrell, I mean, Jatrell's obviously a very good episode of the show. It's also very similar to Duet in a weird way, which is intentional because they actually wanted to, uh, kind of give the same sort of emotional depth to the characters yeah. and they felt like Duet was a really successful episode. I don't think Jatrell is as good as Duet, no. but that has more to do with the fact that we already had a relationship, even as minor as it was, with the Bajorans and the Cardassians from the next generation. And we don't have any sort of emotional or, or intellectual connection to the Talaxians or the Hoconians. We have never even heard of them before this episode. Yeah, we, we the closest that we get, there are some very obvious Hiroshima analogs, for example, and... W- Certainly the episode invites us to make those parallels, and we we understand the Talaxians and the other people, but a, a, as you hear, I didn't did not remember the name of Neelix's people until you just said it, and I already forgot the name of, of Jatrell's people. So that does suggest how kind of ephemeral this conflict is in a way. It also reminded me a lot of the Dark Page in a lot of ways, in that we have a character who is generally used as comedy, as an over-the-top, larger-than-life character. And frankly, we probably have seen as much of Neelix as we have of Lwaxana Troy through the run of TNG at this point. And yet both are episodes which go into their backstory, which kind of suggest why the character has this particular personality and which gives a bit of dignity and seriousness behind them. I mean, I I think that's an interesting comparison, actually, to to compare Loaxana to Neelix. It's not one that I had really thought about before. Yeah, obviously, and obviously, it's it's not a direct one to one. But again, well, no, and I think that that Neelix so far has has obviously been the comic relief of the of the show. Uh, he dresses very oddly. He has very particular reactions to things, <laughs> and Jatrell is a very different. Uh, different story for him to be in. Now, of course, I think in Phage as well, he wasn't really used yeah, as comic fair. relief in that episode. So the two episodes that have been quote-unquote Neelix episodes at this point have both been pretty dark, I think. Yeah. And, you know, I, I don't know that... Because, for example, TNG did comedy sometimes... Not that often, but it didn't. And really, not that well. Not that well. It never really did comedy episodes, whereas DS9 did them quite a bit. I mean, with the Ferengi. And, you know, if you want to know what we thought about the Ferengi episodes of DS9, go back and, and listen to those. But I, I don't know. It's interesting because I kind of have 
I like this episode a lot, but I also think that it kind of indicates problems with the way that Voyager is approaching how it's constructing its characters because I don't know that you can really get away with this kind of thing anymore. Like, I, I feel like it's the kind of thing that needed to be seeded before. Yeah. And, and yes, you could argue that, okay, Voyager doesn't know. The Talaxian-Hakonian War is well known throughout this part of the quadrant because it was a major war and it was this horrible new weapon that was developed by this guy, Dr. Jutrell. And no one brought it up because, of course, it's like if someone didn't know anything about World War II in 1947. Yeah, and none of the adventures that they've been on have had really the opportunity. That said, I could easily – there could have even been a throwaway line like, oh, a Talaxian. You don't see many of those around anymore, something like that. Yeah, and I and I don't want to say that that there's the case where it's ill-defined, but I think it is ill-defined. I mean, certainly there's a there's a part of it which is – yeah, I'm thinking back because you know it's 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 hard to, I think I, I think it's hard to kind of put this in a context because for me what it comes down to is if I think back to the first appearance of say the Bajorans right uh, in TNG and what we knew about them was they were a people that were very very long uh, lived in their civilization that the Cardassians did something horrible to and they had this sort of diaspora and it was uh, living in camps and things like that, right? Not exactly the most um, original idea and certainly not the most well thought out or fleshed out, no. but it was enough. Whereas what do we know about the Talaxians in this episode? They were, they lived on a beautiful planet or at war with some other people and got defeated. Yeah, that's about all we know. And I think that's kind of a problem. Yeah. I think that one of the reasons why, I mean, I like to I think it's a strong episode for Neelix, but I don't think it's a strong episode in terms of world building because that's very, we yeah. don't go to Talax. We don't see any other Talaxians. I think the only other Talaxian we've ever seen was in faces from last week. So I still don't really know what was going on here. And I think it's a strong character episode for Neelix, and I think the performances are very good. But there, I don't know. There's I, like, there, there's there's a there's a hollowness to the episode's construction that that bothers me. Well, let me let let's let's do another one of our imaginative things. Let's say that Jatrell was a Kazon. Let's say that the Kazon were the ones that had wiped out or decimated the Talaxians. Uh, let's say it. it I, I, I use them because that's kind of the only but they other... they didn't decimate the Talaxians. I mean, well, Ta- Talax is still there. I mean, the planet that... He didn't even live on a planet. It was a moon. Yeah, the, so... so Well, yeah, a moon is probably a tenth of the population, so that is decimation. They, they have conquered... To, to, e- e- either way, let's say it's a species that we already know. I'm picking Kazon not because they make the most sense necessarily, but because they're big enough that... We kind of know they're bad guys. We kind it kind of gives a little more resonance to why uh, Neelix was so bent on rescuing Kess from them in the beginning. Be, be, besides the obvious reasons, why he has kind of a bone to pick with them. Why he's wants to get out and any time they're around. Um, I don't know that would that make. I think it would make it better. Yeah. yeah, absolutely, because it would be using the character, the, the races that have already been established in the show, to further deepen the world building. Mm-hmm. Whereas 
This is just, oh, there's another random alien species. They had a war with the Talaxians, and what do we really know about it? And and, and, and I guess further to that point, so now this this, I mean, the de- the Delta Quadrant is fucking horrible, right? Like it, it, it's terrible. But we've got the Kazon running around. We've got the people from the Phage, the Vidians. We've got what are the people? What are Charles' people called? The Hakonians. The Hakonians. Uh, we've got the Hakonians running around. Like every, every every major species is really evil, and there are so many, and yet they haven't necessarily given me the sense that if they were trying to characterize the Delta Quadrant as a place of just almost lawlessness and the and the organizations are more like gangs in a way. This is just a group of loosely affiliated people just as war. There is no major power. There is no federation. There is no dominion, but there are these kind of rogue groups just at each other and trying to get what they can. Again, that that may be an interesting characterization of the Delta Quadrant, but it seems more like that's happened by accident rather than any any specific atmosphere they're trying to give to it. And and that's fine. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any real problem with developing a meta story by accident or, or not really planning of course, it out. Of course. I mean, of course it takes a, it's really hard to do, but, but certainly you can do it. And again, that's how TNG approached its world building. And as we said in our podcasts on that, it did an excellent job of it. Yeah. And I think that, that, you know, again, I'm trying to be fair to Voyager. I'm, I'm trying not to, uh, react to this negatively because of the work that deep space nine did. Yeah. But, I do think that, again, there is a hollowness to this concept that just doesn't feel like it's earned. You know, okay, yes, Neelix was apparently a coward or something. You know, he had these issues. He had these sort of uh, deep problems. He lost his entire family on the moon of Rhinax, and uh, Jatrell is the guy that that invented the the Metreon cascade which is of course basically a nuclear bomb. Yeah. So it's obviously He's basically kinda... Oppenheimer, yeah. Right, but but it's it's just I don't get enough of I needed a scene where they explained what the war was about. Mm. I needed a scene where they explained who the Hakonians and the Talaxians are as people. Yeah. I don't have any sense of what they're like. I don't have any sense of what their government or culture is like. I don't even have a sense of how big their empires or whatever are. I guess I a big question that I have, was Neelix an outcast in his society or was he pretty much what any Talaxian is. That he's very unusual on the ship of Voyager. The re, he's a very striking person there. But would he? I, I am curious about that. It's true. Yeah, and I think that that, that that those are the larger problems for me about the episode. I mean, I they use the word conquer, right? Which is a very very loaded term, and I don't think that we would ever say that uh, America conquered the Japanese, for example. Yeah, that, yeah, that yeah. is not. I mean, certainly we did terrible things, but we did not conquer them, and. They use the word conquer, which to me indicates that that Talax or the Talaxian Empire, whatever the fuck it is, is no longer an independent entity. And the Hakonians have completely taken control of it. And maybe that is why Neelix has left and he has gone off and he is a a, space pirate now. Okay, that's fine. I'll go with that. But it's just that it's not interested enough in that to make it feel real to me. it's it's true. The char- the characters on the show, I, I think so far, are very well done. Again, for a show that supposedly is not character-based, I like many of the characters on this show, at least when they 
uh, again, when the show isn't focusing on Tom Paris, he has no character. He sort of does when there's a Paris episode. That's not handled that well, but the characterization that exists is usually very well done. The conflicts which come out of the characters, the relationships between the characters, all of that feels very good. The plots are fine in and of themselves, a little too solvable by Technobabble, but whatever, the world building is not great in, yeah. the, in the series so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think that, that it's a problem. I don't know what I would do yeah. to fix it. I don't know what that means going forward for the show, but I mean, I do know, but I'm pretending I don't. <laughs> but uh, at the end of the day, I think this is more about Neelix than it is about the larger conflict, which... Yeah. You know, I will I will slot my objections in and then we can talk about Neelix and what it means for for his character going forward and what it means for his character as we've seen it in the previous 15 episodes of the show. Yeah, I have to say this was a very flawed episode in a lot of ways and yet it was one that I was watching wrapped the entire time. Uh the Neelix gets a bunch, for example, ne- Neelix gets several monologues that Previously, I would not necessarily have thought that the character and the actor could pull off that are very striking, very hard to listen to. And I, again, th- these moments are extraordinarily well done. I mean, yeah, it's a good it's a good episode for Neelix. It's a good episode for for the actor um, whose name is escaping me. And I think it's a good episode for for Cass as well because she does yeah. get a couple of moments to again be the Mary Sue. But <laughs> okay, we'll we'll have to deal with that. And I think it does a good job of recontextualizing Neelix for yeah. for Janeway specifically, because I think that she gets a, she's not in this episode much, and this is not a, a Janeway episode. She is not the purpose of this episode. This is not why it exists. Yeah, yeah. But she does get a couple of moments to emote <laughs> to, to Neelix, and she's obviously very very. I mean, whatever else you can say about the world building of this episode, it is the case that Neelix watched his home get destroyed by a terrible weapon and his entire family was destroyed and murdered uh, by this person and by the military of of the Hakonian Empire, whatever you want to call them. So that's obviously a bad thing. And that's obviously something that is going to have a lot of uh, emotional impact, right? And I think that Janeway pulls that off very nicely. I think that she doesn't make it about her. She also, interestingly, I think, you know, doesn't really judge Jatrell's actions because that's the Starfleet way. That's not her job to do that. And I think she she recognizes, number one, that he's at least trying to in some way atone. And I think more so than that, she knows – She's able to see that his plan, whatever his reasoning is, might work, and so therefore, it you do, even if Jatrell is a an irredeemable asshole, he still may have a good idea here, and so don't throw the baby out with the bathwater necessarily. Yeah, because I think that that I don't know. I think it's crystallizing for me exactly why I hate going, keep going back to this, but uh. but it's crystallizing for me exactly why I have such a problem with the world building in this episode because. If this had just been two random characters that was telling a larger a larger sort of fable around or allegory surrounding World War II and the use of nuclear weapons. As Star Trek has done similarly many times. Yeah. I think it would have been fine. But to make this kind of horrific backstory the part of one of our main characters mm. and also of a species that we don't really know anything about – 
that to me indicates that there's something else there. That indicates to me that the, the show is going to be interested in examining this further on an ongoing basis because Neelix is a main character in the show. Yeah. And I, I mean, I don't want to spoil anything, but I mean, it doesn't really. Uh, again, does, does, are is Neelix in this episode thinking, shit, I have to deal with the man who um, murdered my entire family and everybody I know and made my home unlivable permanently? And also, I only have one lung. I mean, is that is that going through his mind during this? Does the show remember that? I don't know. Yeah, and so I guess my question will be, is the show going to remember that this is his backstory, that he made these strides in this episode, that, you know, his relationship with Kess changed because he's been able to finally open up about... You're right, these are very... These would make significant changes to his character and the way the other characters react to him. Yes, and I don't know that that happens. Mm. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to be too churlish about it. I think that that in terms of establishing a dramatic and and a terrible backstory for Neelix, I think it does a good job, right? And we have a character who so far uh, has been used as comic relief, yeah. has been used as someone who... But at, the, at his core, I think there was a core of not loneliness necessarily, but, but he was definitely a little bit apart from everybody else. And he obviously was apart from... from galactic society because yeah. he was in a ship by himself and not really doing anything well it, it makes his entire reasoning for being on voyager a lot more it gives him more of a reason again when they first find him he he immediately pretty much decides he's living on voyager and this is it and he has Cass and you know she's my girlfriend and we're together forever and this is my home and this is everything and one is and Everyone's reacting it. Well, that's just Neelix. He's a person who makes himself at home wherever he goes. He is very confident. He just, you know, do, very blunt, doesn't really, you know, care about certain niceties. And now we're realizing that he was scavenging because that for the past 15 years is how he's eked out in an existence. If the Hakonians are so powerful, if, fr- frankly, Detrell mentions at one point that his work to try and undo what he's done made made them cast him as a as a sympathizer. Now, that's Jatrell's story. We don't know how exactly the Hakonians are viewing it, and certainly Jatrell's plan is a little half-cocked at this point. But it does suggest that perhaps many – the Talaxians are refugees. Are, is the United States today very nice towards refu- the refugees it's bombing? I mean, that that's – that's how Neelix has spent the past 15 years of his life, and suddenly here's a very nice ship, which is very, being very friendly and letting him on. And so, yeah, he's going to grab that. That is the – it also gives a poignancy, for example, to when he's talking to, to Tuvok about that soup or whatever. I mean, you get the sense that Talaxian food is probably very spicy and challenging, and the reason he is making everybody else's food spicy is because he's – trying to regrasp his own home in that. Again, these are very poignant moments. I don't know necessarily if they were intended. I don't know if Neelix, from the moment he was created as a character, what they knew all along, they would eventually reveal this about him. No, I don't think yeah. so. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. And I think that, that, again, looking at Neelix as saying, okay, he's got two different personalities, and he was a very different person before 
the destruction of Rhinox and after yeah. the destruction of Rhinox, right? And and I'm guessing though, that's kind of the problem. Yeah. It's like I'm guessing. I I think that Rhinox was destroyed. I think that Rhinox was the I mean, I know that Rhinox <laughs> was destroyed, but I think that it was the last gasp of the war and and Talax surrendered after yeah. that. And who knows what happened to them? They use the word conquered. So Talax is ruled by the Hakonians yeah. now. And so all these Talaxians left because they don't want to be under the thumb of their hated enemies. But also the Hakonians. And that's fine. But I, I, what does that mean for me? I don't know. I mean, question, you know, questions that I have, questions that I have, the word conquered wasn't that used by Neelix. He is going to have a very particular view of the situation that happened, whether it was a defeat or an actual they're occupying them again it's ambiguous but i don't know i think conquered indicates to me that, yeah. that they're being ruled by the, the hakonians now to me same yes i mean it's sort of almost like a bajoran situation to me yeah i mean it doesn't seem like the hakonians are as bad but then again we've seen charming cardassian so who the fuck knows yeah exactly you know i don't know i don't know well let's talk about Charles then because i think that he is an interesting character and i like him as a performance quite a bit I think that the core uh, sadness of Jatrell is that he obviously comes from a culture that is not, let's say, charitably trusting. Mm -hmm. And if he had just told everybody on the ship what his plan actually was, they may have figured out a way to make it work. Yeah, I, I, I think Janeway even says as much late in the episode, and he, that's when he says, well, I went to my government with this, and they wouldn't. Um, I mean, we have Janeway in this episode saying about all of his plans, oh, yes, this might work, this can work, and she provides a very interesting function doing that because if we didn't ha- – because at this point, her scientific uh, knowledge is is unquestioned that so if she is giving a plan, her imprimatur, then we have to assume that, yes, this is a completely valid and theoretically sound plan that he has. It is very important that Jatrell not be a quack in a way. He is somebody who is – he certainly has many demons that he's dealing with and many problems, even aside from the fact that he created a bomb that killed an entire moon. Uh, he is an extraordinarily narcissistic person. He is only able to see other people's tragedies in terms of his own. Uh, and yet, uh, again, he's right about, well, I, I, I guess his ending plan, part of the implication is that they're not able to do it because they just don't have enough power to do do so correct uh i mean i guess i i don't i don't know that i would really want to get into the specifics of why the techno babble solution didn't work because you know well they could they could have made it work if they wanted to make it work of course (laughs) to the degree that it is important though i think it does highlight just how again isolated voyager is let's look at the tng version of this episode where they're in the alpha quadrant well this one ship doesn't have enough power to it but they send a dozen ships, even if it takes a week to restore each person that way, they will be able to do it. There will be an eventual 
restoration of this moon and a happy ending and Neelix will meet his family and go back home and all of that in a tone. But because Voyager is so alone, because they are the only Federation vessel and the only person who is entity who is willing to try this, the plan does fail because of that. Yeah, but I think it's deeper than that because I think that for the episode to work, the plan has to fail. You said Jatrell is full of himself and he certainly is. And I think that primarily what this episode is about is about a man believing that he can atone for his crimes by making sure that they didn't happen essentially. And just because let's spin this out and say that his plan actually worked and he was able to bring back every single person that died on Rhinax that would not have erased the fact that he he invented this weapon and the Hakonians used it. And those people, and we don't know what those people would have been like when they came back. That's the other part of it as well. I mean, they may have been horribly psychologically scarred by this experience. Well, let, or, or frankly, you don't even have to go into psychologically scarring. Let's say they just experience it as just, you know, they, they immediately pass out and come back. So, like, they've lost subjectively at most an hour or something like that. That is going to have major social ramifications because this moon being utterly destroyed by the Hakonians is such a powerful symbol. So it being restored, we've got the next phase of the war coming, by the way. I'm not sure what you mean uh, by that. If, if they're conquered and suddenly the moon comes back. And now, you don't, now you not only have reinforcements who are pissed that they got vaporized by this, you've got all the people who are still on Talax. They're going to have another form, another wave of rebellion as a result of this moon being restored. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but I'm just again just thinking in terms of it's not like him restoring it would make everybody go home happy. But there is, I guess, a grand. But that's the thing, though, is that it's not about them. No, like the, no, it's true. The, such... the episode is not interested in yeah. the actual events. The in, the episode is interested in a psychological examination of Neelix and Jatrell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so whatever would actually happen, I mean, that's the DS9 version of this episode. Yeah. And okay. and it's not interested in that. Yeah. I mean, Jatrell is it's interested enough in that it makes Jatrell's plans grandiose. He's not again, he's not just it would be one thing if he had spent the rest of his career, as he says at the beginning looking up a cure for this. If he really wanted to get a cure for this um, illness that it turns out Neelix doesn't even have. Metremia. Metremia, whatever. He and the doctor working together for the rest of his own life, they will come up with something. If not a cure, then maybe better treatment or something. Again, the doctor knows every si- – if that was what he really wanted to do and that yeah. would have been – a quiet thing which would have actually helped people. All right, you know, maybe he's not going to completely atone for it, but he's going to make the world better for the what he did. That would be a version of, of Detrell that would be saner, be more reasonable, and be more practical. But he wants to re- wants to restore the moon that he destroyed himself. And I mean, I will say, though, that, that, that I don't necessarily— th- I mean, while, yes, Jatrell is obviously doing this for his own personal reasons, yeah. if he had succeeded, if this had been possible, I, I think that that would have been still a good thing. Yeah. I don't know that he would have redeemed himself, but I think that because, you know, Neelix at the end of the episode forgives Jatrell after being very, yeah. very strident about the fact that, you know, for the first 15 minutes of the episode or whatever, he doesn't even want to talk to Jatrell. He doesn't want to be in the same room as Jatrell. He's essentially using Janeway as a proxy. Yeah. 
And because he's terrified of Jatrell, frankly. Well, he's terrified of Jatrell, but yeah. I also think he's terrified about what he might do when he's in the same room as Jatrell. There is no positive emotion that Neelix can have. Yeah. Right. And and so, of course, at the end of the episode, Neelix does forgive Jatrell. And of course, that's not about Jatrell. That's about yeah. Neelix. Because this is about Neelix coming to terms with the fact that he never did really come to terms with yeah. the, the loss that he experienced. He never wanted to tell uh, Cass about it, for instance, really. He didn't tell her the full story about why he was not actually on Rhinex at the time. Mm-hmm. He was not a war hero. You know, so there are some other mitigating factors here as well. And I think that Neelix is realizing that just as he is a complicated person who didn't, who, who, who portrayed himself in one particular way after the end of the war, be, more because it protected himself than other people, yeah. Detrell, he's realizing that Detrell also may have those elements. And while Jatrell is not a good person, Neelix needs to forgive him so that he can move on. Yeah. It, it, Neel- and Jatrell's dying. So it's like he's got his comeuppance. <laughs> well, yeah. Neelix cannot make Jatrell suffer anymore in a way that will not turn Neelix into, into, a, into the monster that he is trying to avoid becoming. He can't... Jatrell cannot suffer anymore in a way which is going to make him actually change his views, and he has suffered. Um, he lo- he did lose his family, and we'll, I guess, get to that in a second, but he's, he is dying. He's lost the respect of—he has gone from a preeminent scientist to an outcast from his own society, a very desperate, sick man, and I think— I think Neelix finally comes to the point where he realizes, really does realizes that the hatred he has for Jatrell is eating at his soul and just how sad and tiny of a figure Jatrell is at this point. It's, you know, he's already dead, you know, stop killing him. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And I I think, yeah, the final thing to talk about before we move on to to the season finale is that, yeah, Jatrell did lose his wife and, and kids. Because she left him. Yeah. I, you know, yeah. it, it does. It indicates. Well, the, the one thing that that's important for, of course, is indicating that the Hakonians are not some sort of monolithic. Yeah. You know, entity that all believe the same thing. And so she obviously did not appreciate yeah. the fact that her husband was this, <laughs> frankly, genocidal monster. So, OK. Yeah. Again, if we can agree that there is such a thing as a just war using this Metreon cascade for for the wife and. For Jatrell, even though he really can never fully admit it, was crossing that line into unjust war. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jatrell didn't use it. I mean, that's his that's his Weasley but, answer for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. There, he says and he talks about scientific inevitability, and somebody else would have done it. And I think a lot of this episode is again. I think Neelix's forgiveness comes from him realizing that. Jatrell is finally starting to realize it, realize the holes in certain of his excuses. And for the rest, he n- is never going to, and he's going to die without that, whether or not Neelix may- yells at him or not about right, it. It's right. not going to happen. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and to Neelix's credit, when he does say the, well, I lost my wife, Neelix basically does say, yeah, but you contributed to the death of an entire moon. Uh, e- even if your wife and kids were murdered by the enemy, still it, it doesn't equate at all. And yet, I mean, don't they? I, I think you told me at one point that they did a study where psychologically it doesn't really matter the whether you're 
unhappy because of your job or because your entire city like unhappiness is felt as unhappiness in a right. way yeah Jutrell is suffering his suffering maybe can't equi- can't equate to Neelix's suffering but it is still suffering at the well, hands of what it really comes down to is you know let, let's let's get into philosophy after talking about something for <laughs> 30 minutes but you know it, it comes to objective versus subjective yeah and and the subjective experience of of an emotion is is pretty much the same i mean anxiety unhappiness yeah certainly there are worse there are worse feelings than there are gradations of feeling in there and of course you know the way that you feel when you um i don't know like stub your toe and the way that you feel when you get shot in the stomach (laughs) are obviously not the same but in in terms of kind of anxiety everyday life low level once you get used to something the initial shock wears off you know the the fact that uh, Neelix lost his entire family in this horrible inter, interplanetary yeah. uh, war crime, and the fact that Jatrell lost his family because his wife thought he was a monster and, and abandoned him and took her three their three children with her. It's kind of the same thing emotionally, not objectively, of course. No, objectively, what Neelix <laughs> went through was much worse. But well, it's that concept. Yeah, the concept, the hedonic treadmill, basically. You get the sense Chitrell is always going to be ignoring the right, ignoring the truth in order to self-aggrandize and being miserable the entire time and blaming every misery on somebody else. And Neelix is going to be the person who he's going to try to be happy-go-lucky about the thing. He is going to enjoy cooking. I mean, hell, at one point, he re- to Kess, he reacts to the news that he's going to die at some point in the next few years with well, at least we've got the same ref lifespan now, so that's good. I mean, that is certainly very cynical on his part, but he's trying. That's all he's really had for the past 15 years, trying to at least see the bright escape spot. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of characters who believe in self-aggrandizement, I think it's time to talk about Tuvok and Learning Curve. <laughs> Yay! Either Tuvok in this episode is a, is is a total hard ass and kind of dumb, or he's the biggest fucking chess master in the, in in the franchise. I think, and he knows exactly how to play these people. And I'm not sure which. Uh, I don't think it's the latter, but we'll talk about that. <laughs> I I like this episode. Yeah. It's it's obviously low stakes. There's not really much going on in terms of the ship being in danger yeah. or anything like that. But all the, while I liked to and I think that all the, but the problems I had with it in terms of world building, in terms of, of consequences, in terms of constructing um, something that made sense for the characters and for the people and for the world, and the environment that they were in learning curve was that episode. I mean, again, Voyager does get criticized for not dealing with the Maquis stuff. Yeah. And I will say that this is probably one of the last times that they deal with it, but you could make an argument that that's fine. It's done with. And, and the, and it also extrapolates out, of course, logically from the events of the pilot hmm. and says, okay, here we've been on this ship for however long we've been on the ship, two months, three months. I don't know. And some people are still having trouble with this. What are we going to do about yeah. it? Yeah. And it does something about it. And I think it's very satisfying. Yeah. It is a very small episode. Nothing. This isn't a big, the Maki are planning to mutiny. This Again, when, when I saw the Netflix description and it just mentioned, you know, 
issues with Maquis crewman getting integrated into the show, something like that. I figured, okay, this is going to maybe this is the return of Seska, and she's trying to get you know people to yeah. This it, it's a very small thing. None of them, nobody even mentions the possibility that any of the people are doing any sabotage. That this that's why the systems are going on. The one. Uh, O'Doyle, O'Donovan, whatever his name is, Dolby. Dolby. Um, where did you get? Where did you get an O from? I don't know. Uh, I'm really bad at names. Okay. Um, again, Dolby is found fixing this pu- in a suspicious location. Again, nobody thinks he's mutinying. They all correctly recognize that this is just a lack of protocol training. He did the right thing, but in the wrong way, and. Yet I feel like it is a very nice culmination of a lot of the season's themes, a lot of the show's themes so far. It does again. I can't tell whether this was written to be a finale or if no. it was just so this. But it is kind of nice how it does act as a little cap to it. I guess. I mean, I don't think it works very well as a season it's, finale. And but... maybe this is going into the fact that well, next week we're going to be watching the next two episodes, and so we. I'm not experiencing it with, all right, well, I've got three months before the next episode. This is done. Or I I don't have to buy another DVD set. So there is that coming into play. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I think that it it is true that that this episode comes at a very good point in the the season. Uh, Again, I I don't think that I would put it at the last episode of the season. But in terms of its placement, I think it's done very well. I like the fact that, yes, okay, we had in State of Flux the, the revelation that Seska was a Cardassian agent. Yeah. And I think that you're right that, that the, a lesser version of this episode would have taken the, the bioneural uh, gel pack problems as some sort of sabotage. And it's not interested in that. It's not the story it wants yeah. to tell. Because essentially I think what you can say about the first season of Voyager is that it is a show that is very interested in – bringing these two disparate groups of people together and they have been successful and unsuccessful, various degrees of success, successful with all of that. But it's never that they have abandoned the core principles that define them as people, which is that they take everyone at face value and they do not judge groups, right? They judge people. And so I think that's been something that's kind of been under, never really outright stated in the show but the fact of the matter is Janeway doesn't mistrust the Maquis yeah. because she doesn't mistrust groups of people. And she knows also that most of the Maquis, if not all of them, don't want to die. And there yeah. would be no reason for them to take over the ship. And how could they take over the ship? I mean, we don't know how many of them there are, but it doesn't seem like there are more than 20 of them. Yeah. So there's a lot of different elements there. And you know what they come up with as a solution to that is, okay, here's, this, here's some crew members that are having some disciplinary problems that are not really following protocol. Let's put them through Starfleet boot camp. And okay, I'm with you. I like it. In a way, it reminded me a little of Lower Decks or any of the episodes with Bashir and his super genius friends. Um, in the, it, I'd say it's more effective than Lower Decks because this is all going through the lens of Tuvok. It's not like we're just being asked to solely focus on four characters we've never seen before and will never see again. I don't know if we're going to see any of these four again. Incidentally, they very easily – it could go either way. 
the bullion becomes captain. Okay, great. No, I, I don't know if we see them again. I mean, I think that that I, I I think that what's good about this episode, there's a lot of areas that are good about it, but I think that primarily it comes down to the fact that the Maquis are, I don't know, their their interpersonal problems with Tuvok and their interpersonal problems with everybody else on the ship are coming from a real place, and I think yeah. you can really sense the frustration of someone like Dalby, for instance, who's you know he's probably thirty five, forty. He doesn't want to deal with yeah. this. He's he didn't ask to be here. He's not wanting to have to become a Starfleet yeah. officer. And he already passed the requirements to be who he was, and that just fate took him out of that. I will say that I think the one the one part of the episode that I, I don't necessarily think is earned is you know, there's a lot of talk about Tuvok understanding, kind of explaining why they do things the way they yeah. do. I don't like see a lot of that in this episode i see and i think tuvok is the problem in this episode obviously which yeah. is part of the point but there are well, kind of, it's kind of like resolved at the end because tuvok rescues someone and you're kind of like okay but again could have been dealt with very simply so at, at the end he's all say well the needs of the many and the needs of the few we can't go back and save him could and then he go, comes back as the change of heart. Well, sometimes I need to do things the mo- the bend the rules. Okay, um, and yet this was which a, um like well let's, number one. Let's this, not forget what the fuck Tuvok did in in Prime Factors. <laughs> well, let me ask you. Number one, this is and I guess I I don't want to yet go into the problems with Tuvok, but this asked me to accept that Tuvok was going to let a twenty year old kid die in a, in a training accident before he got guilted into it. Uh, but either way, this is a perfect opportunity for Tuvok to say, see, this is the kind of shit that can happen when you're on Federation adventures. I, I barely survived this, and you saw me, you know, dancing around during those, you know, laps, and you you know how physically fit I am. And we almost died. This is why you need to be in peak physical condition. This is why you need to be able to react this well. This is, you know, do you want to know why you do what we do? I just saved this guy's life. Again, perfect opportunity for him to justify all of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that would have been a little too on the nose, though. I don't think we need a scene of Tuvok saying, here's why I did what I just did. Well, let me put it this way, then. Uh, but, but the scene that we got where... You know, sometimes you need to bend like the flower that Neelix showed me. And, you know, well, if you can bend the rules, we can follow. That was no more necessary than the thing I just outlined. I, I mean, don't that, know. That's, that's an 80s teen comedy yeah. approach to a re- resolution of an episode. It's fair. I don't know. I don't really have a problem with it. I mean, eh. I think that because that, to me what it comes down to yeah. is I do, I do think we need to grapple with the fact that uh, Tuvok is – He's a problematic character. Yeah. I don't know if they know what to do with him yeah. from episode to episode, and he seems inconsistently portrayed. See, what I was thinking about Tuvok is our normal thing about Vulcans, which is Vulcans are not machines. They are people with extraordinarily deep emotions and convictions, and yet who use that as another data point and logic is what they use to sort through all of those and we've always said Tuvok is not played as a robot. I think in a lot of ways Tuvok is somebody who is very much not a robot and yet is faking trying to be colder than he is, trying to be more robotic than he is because let's let's look at the situation that he's in along with everybody else. He has 
lost his family. He's way the hell out in the Delta Quadrant. He's not really sure what to do. He is the one who sees the most dire predictions. He went when if there is a shot of going something going wrong, he knows exactly what the chances are and exactly what's going to go. Tuvok is probably extraordinarily depressed, frightened, unsure, chaotic, and and so is doubling down on the logic, on the sublimation of the emotions, just in order to get his day done. I mean, the scene where Neelix approaches him and basically says the that he can see his uh, his emotions having a physical gloomy form around him. I mean, this is Tuvok even worse. So yeah, maybe he has to try to be less emotional than he really is just because he can't get through the day otherwise. He would be horrible. He would be very ineffective. I th- Why doesn't he just drink? Well, I, I mean, maybe there is a lot of synthahol happening. Um, I, I don't disagree with any of that. I... I'm still not sure why Tuvok is acting like that in this episode. Yeah, you know, I don't know. It feels like I'm not saying that it's not true that Tuvok has already been shown to be a bit of a stickler for protocol. Yeah, he has been. I mean, let's think about the scene. Uh, I forget what episode it was in, but you know, Harry Kim is saying, "Gosh, gee, look at that! I've never seen anything like that before. Oh my <laughs> god, I can't believe this is real!" And Tuvok is like, "Dude, shut the fuck up! This <laughs> is not what senior officers do on the bridge." You know, he has been shown to be a stickler for for protocol before. I'm not saying he hasn't been. However, I think part of the point of like state like uh, uh, prime factors, for example, was that even a logical extension of that is uh, you you can you can break the rules when logic dictates it. Now, I had problems yeah. with his justif- the justifications for his actions in prime factors, so I don't necessarily know that I'm going to use that as an example of why this episode doesn't make sense, but. I don't know. I mean, I guess you could spin it out and say the events of Prime Factors affected Tuvok strongly enough that he realized that he can't really be, uh, he can't really trust his own judgment to some degree on these sorts of factors. And so he's going to double down and be as strict as possible because he doesn't want to get into another situation like he did at the end of Prime Factors. Yeah, that's right. I mean, when he's talking about his teaching methods, how he says, oh, they're time-honored, they're... He's teaching exactly how he was taught and how he was taught to teach. And, again, obviously, he was teaching people who signed up for this punishing of training, and he doesn't know how to deal with people who have been thrust in the situation and all of that, but, yeah, he's... You don't get the sense that he is a teacher who experiments or changes the lesson when all of the students are having trouble with it. He doesn't see it at any, any pro. It takes him a while, and that the most of the point of this episode is, is him getting to that realization. But yeah, when the when when your students are aren't learning, if it's all of them, the problem is with the teacher. Yeah, but I think that there's a couple things that that are that I have a problem with about that. Yeah. Number one, of course, is that Tuvok did teach at the Academy for the episode says 16 years. Yeah. So he obviously did have some experience with this. Now, of yes. course he was teaching 18 year olds who wanted to be there and who were ostensibly the best of the best of the best because they got accepted yeah, to Starfleet yeah, yeah. Academy. He was not teaching adults who were psychologically damaged <laughs> people that did not want to be there. Okay. I get that. That's, that's a difference, but the other part of that, of course, is that 
there's always this idea that Vulcans have this moment of reckoning with like humans or whatever. And to me, I look at this and I say, okay, well, Tuvok. Wait, what do you mean? Because that's always been the thing about uh, um, Spock, for example, right? Like going back to the original series, you know, he didn't understand why humans did things. And of course, there was a little bit of a wryness to that because, of course, he did understand it and he was just fucking with them. But with Tuvok, it seems to me that the episode is arguing that he doesn't really understand the emotional reaction that these people are going to be having to him, basically saying, listen, dicks, here's how things are going to be. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, no, just, you're right. it, it strikes me as odd. Spock I mean, Tuvok, has... Tuvok is like 80 years old or something. I mean, it's not like he's a kid. Yeah, Spock is some... Spock does a little more of like we do like straight people, right? Why do they act that way? Why are they? Yeah. We he, said we weren't going to talk about straight people anymore, so fair enough. Um, they suck, by the way. <laughs> um, see, I guess it means it's more significant that Spock is a Vulcan crewman on a human ship in the original series because that is more of a sense of him being the he is. Definitely, he is much more of an outsider on his ship in in his world than Tuvok is. Tuvok is in a in a time where he is not the only alien on on ship. He is not the only Vulcan who is going to be on it. He he's a lot less you know it's it's a lot less strange. It's he's a lot less exotic, I guess, and so. Spock has certainly needed to adapt to the people around him a little more strongly than maybe Tuvok needed to, because Tuvok, I guess, maybe would be more accepted. People understand Vulcans a little more in his era than they might have in... Nobody is going up and even jokingly saying the things McCoy said to Spock. And again, that the series made it very clear that that was him teasing his brother kind of a thing, but... By the events of Voyager, that's just a Federation person wouldn't say that. You well, wouldn't. Neelix kind of is that person. In but this Neelix show. is, and Neelix is not a Federation citizen. Well, that's my point. Yeah, yeah. And I think that also it's that you know I don't know. I I think we've said all we can say about Neelix or about Tuvok because I don't know that the episode is really clear about which Tuvok we're supposed to be engaging with in this episode. Well, it's with these episodes give we we've had similar criticisms of both episodes and that. They are part of a larger thing, and yet they are self-contained in their way. It's almost, you know, this is certainly not an anthology series, not even in the way that the original series was sort of an anthology series. But again, it's more so. Well, because I think that, okay, let's compare and contrast the way that Tuvok is portrayed with the way Chakotay is portrayed. Because I think that the, the the scene with Chakotay yeah. in the mess hall is amazing. Yeah. And I think it says more about Chakotay as a person <laughs> than anything else he's done in the entire first season. And it's obviously out of... Well, I'm going to say it's out of character for him because it's out of character for Chakotay on Voyager. But the show is able to show different sides of Chakotay without it seeming yeah. like he's a schizophrenic. Whereas the show is tr- is having trouble showing different sides of Tuvok without it making Tuvok seem like a schizophrenic or an idiot. Well, yeah, Chakotay was... So Chakotay was... I'm a, sorry, it's pronounced Chakotay. Chakotay was a... Um, he had been a Federation guy before he, he... He had been a Starfleet guy before he became a Maki. And so he has lived the loyal, good, the lawful, good Federation lifestyle. He needed to go into the chaotic, good as he viewed it, Maquis, because he felt this is 
Uh, and again, I'm extrapolating based on the reasons many people have said that they've joined the Maquis over, mostly in DS9. Sure. But knowing what we know, the little we know about Shaco, we uh, could probably assume, again, that he felt that this was too important. Federation dropped the ball. These people need to be protected. The Maquis is something, is a necessary evil. And yet he seems to jump at the chance to go back into the lawful world. He doesn't feel really any angst whatsoever about slipping back and punching somebody who needs punching. He, he, the Maquis ships seem a little more like maybe how Klingon ships are run where your commanding officer will deck you if you're pissing him off. But again, he because he recognizes, all right, I need to slip into this for this mode for this in order to get what I want, in order to exercise the power that I have. Tuvok is not able to slip from levels as easily. Well, maybe that's really what it comes down to then, is that fundamentally Chakotay knows who he is. Yeah. And so he's not uncomfortable with changing and adapting the way that he portrays himself to other people because the core of his personality is known to him and he knows who he is. Whereas maybe Tuvok doesn't Mm. know who he is. And maybe he's just adopt, like you said before, he's adopting these very, very strict outward appearances and actions because inside he is a, he's a, yeah. he's a mess. That that yeah. certainly could be the case. Logic in in a place where they barely know where they they have no idea where they are. They're so far from home. Logic and protocol are still the same. They're the bedrocks. He, he, the soup even tastes weird to Tuvok. So he's at least, but he's at least got that. Yeah. And I mean, I, I you know, I will say, I don't think that having the Maquis crew members have to to go through some sort no. of boot camp on the ship is like an ideal situation either. No, I mean, certainly everyone is making the best of a bad situation here, and I think that's really what this episode is about. But 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 there's moments like again, he's talking to Darby and say they're talking about the kid, and he's he's saying, well, we wanted, to, you know, Darby is saying, well, why would you treat him so terribly? You're being so rough on him, and. Tuvok, again, is almost surprised. This is, well, we figured he it would be a good thing for him to learn more skills. You'll all be more effective at your jobs. We didn't want this to be a punishment. We wanted you to enjoy this. But they're, they, they are approaching this like it's a punishment. If they'd gone on to the yeah. four of them and say, you know, listen, we know you're having some difficulties. We would love to arrange some special training in order so you'll be more effective at that. Again, be at face value. You know, it, it, it's difficult. We need to exp- – explain why these situation because situations such as somebody bringing on cheese that almost kills the ship happen and we all need to be 100 percent. well that yeah because that was the other thing that i wanted to ask you is is you know fundamentally this episode is saying the starfleet way is the only way to do things and if you don't do things the starfleet way you are doing things the wrong way now you could make an argument that the end of the episode undercuts that point a little bit but i think on the whole this is going to be a Starfleet ship. This is going yeah. to be a Starfleet crew. Well, I and my question is, do you find that satisfying? Do you think that that is a true representation of what at the core of this show would really be? I mean, do you well, think that, that like I don't know. I, see, I, don't, I don't agree I don't, with you. I don't I, know. I don't agree that the show is that this episode or the show or anything is saying that. In every single situation, the Starfleet way is the best way because – no, I think it is saying this is a Starfleet ship. The majority of the people 
are Starfleet trained. If you ha- once you get past a certain threshold of people who have Starfleet training and, training and expect protocol to go a certain way and expect interactions to go in this matter, the people who are not following them will gum up things. As simple as in the beginning of the episode, well, the... I mean, I guess it's colored by my knowledge of what comes after this. And that's fair. Because it doesn't, though. Like, that doesn't happen. I mean, like I said, this is fairly resolved after this episode, and then everyone is just Starfleet after this. Yeah. You know, so I don't know. I I, I don't know. I think that there is a a little bit of a disappointment there. Yeah, and I guess the question will be, is Voyager going... I guess the question is, Voyager going to be... trying to convert other people to the Starfleet way, to the Federation way, or are they just, this is our own house and it it's going to be this way, and if we were on a Maquis ship, we would all be doing the Maquis way because, you know, that's whose house we're in. I, I, well, I mean, I don't know, because I think that the, the, the cheese B-plot is actually more related to yeah. the A-plot of the episode than, than perhaps most people realize, because, yeah, Neelix brought this milk onto the ship. They cleared it through the biofilters, and then he decided to make cheese. And it, it turned, it's not milk; it's split. Well, whatever. <laughs> but it turned out that making the cheese caused this horrible thing to happen that almost destroyed the ship and killed everyone. Yeah. And indirectly, of course, that's exactly the argument that Tuvok is making: <laughs> that there are reasons why we have these protocols, and there are reasons why we do things in a particular way. Yeah. And if we don't do things in a particular way, if we just go off half-cocked and start making cheese <laughs> on the ship, bad shit's going to happen. On the other hand, they do. it's not like Neelix smuggles the split onto the... It is law. Well, no, they do I, know well, that. But I think what I'm saying is that Taking something on the ship is one thing. Doing yeah. something else that you're not telling anyone what you're doing like is another thing. Mm. That's what Dolby did at the beginning of the episode. That's what Neelix did by making yeah. the cheese. I, you know, it, it is the same kind of thing where why do I need to tell anybody what I'm doing? I'm just doing this thing and then we're going to have cheese or the ship is going to be fixed and everything's going to be fine. And Tuvok and Janeway are like, dudes, what are you doing? You can't just go off and do shit. Well, we, yeah. And I guess we've seen that theme come up from time for the fact that Neelix even has the kitchen I mean, is, is a perfect example of I'm this thing should be done. I'm going to do it. He didn't ask permission. He. Now, it turns out in this particular case, Janeway gives him the leniency and allows him to have the kitchen, sure, but it is a gray area, and and now we're seeing Neelix make the error and, sure. and, and this happen. I'm also thinking about Seska and the mushroom soup. Again, something that isn't exactly going to hurt anybody, and maybe we'll be happy with the result, but was still wrong and still did fuck up a plan a little bit. I mean, I, I fundamentally, I mean, this, I, this isn't really related to anything in the episode, but I almost wonder what this show would have been like if it was Captain Sisko in charge of Voyager. You know, like, because he was someone who had to be adaptable. He was someone yeah. who, who had to realize that running Deep Space Nine, like a Starfleet installation, was perhaps yeah. not going to work. And Janeway, I don't know, realizes that because it doesn't seem like she's really internalized the fact that it's it's a different situation, yeah, a very, yeah, very yeah. precarious situation. I mean, Cisco at least knew that... I mean, Deep Space Nine was built by the Cardassians, owned by the Bajorans, and just administered by 
the Federation. And so, again, he kind of knew this wasn't really his house. He was just sitting in that chair. He didn't own it. He didn't have a... and. But Starfleet didn't remember that. Let's not forget that. Yeah, or that's... didn't realize that. Let's not forget that. He did have problems with Starfleet yeah, yeah. when he was doing things that they thought were not exactly correct. Mm, so... Yeah. Yeah, but I guess I guess my point is that even though they are in a very different part of the galaxy and we know all of that, I think Janeway still does look at the ship architecture and say, all right, Federation, Starfleet, that's where we are. That's the principle we need to hold to. At the same time, the show has made the point of there needs to be some kind of – I mean this is almost going to – uh, British colonialist narratives, but we need to keep some degree of civilization here. We need to have something still. There still needs to be something that we, some line that we cannot cross. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, I guess in this episode is Tuvok realizing that that line may not be exactly where he thinks it is. In other words, he he's thinking that well, Starfleet. Every single Starfleet person has to be to this punishingly high standard and if if he's used to having the option where a balana torres can get expelled from the academy if she's not hacking it and it isn't insignificant that balana torres is barely treated as a maquis at this point uh i also think it's interesting that she's the one who absolves neelix of the problem with the cheese she just said does say it's not your fault you know none of us could have foreseen this it, it it sucks but it happened and we're not you know we're not worried about blame um but yeah i i i think this is tuvok realizing that okay maybe not every starfleet every person on this ship can be exactly as you know darby may never be as good as balana torres but how do we get Darby to be the best Darby that he can be? Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be right. Well, maybe the last thing I want to ask you before we, we wrap this podcast up is, uh, so we're done with the first season now. Uh, you have seen 17, 16 episodes of the show, yeah. something like that. Um, as a first season of the show, I think it's fairly representative. How, how, how do you feel about this? How, how are you feeling? I guess I gotta be honest and say I'm still waiting for the show to start. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. Um, it feels like I I, I still like I wish again. I, I know this is a shorter season than most of the other. I think only United States of Terror that we did was shorter, and and Firefly, I guess. But uh, uh, uh this is five to seven episodes shorter than the seasons we're used to. And so, yes, it is a shorter season, but it does feel like I've only seen a couple episodes. I was shocked that the season was ending already. It doesn't feel like I've watched 15 episodes already. And I guess my hopes and wishes are that it does get a little more consistent. But again, the Voyager is a show that I know mostly from rumors and reputation, right? I know that the Borg appear, I know that Seven of Nine is hot, and I know that the show is a goddamn mess at times. And I guess when if if you take the really good episodes and even the even episodes like the the two this week, which weren't perfect episodes, but I thought were very like if we were to get they're if, worthwhile. If the show was at this quality from week to week. And I see no we reason why it shouldn't be this quality from week to week. It would be a good show, but I guess... Well, Brown and Bragg was doing a lot of coke, so... 
Well, you know, they're, they're, then I'm really surprised it was so few episodes because the 300 episode first season of, uh, but an episode like Cathexis still does happen. And I, I don't feel like they're going to get that out of their system for any appreciable length of time. Well, I think that that is a good summation of the first season, a good summation of your reactions to it. And, a good place for us to leave this episode of the show. If you have any comments on either of the episodes of Star Trek Voyager we just discussed, please leave a comment on the post for this episode of the podcast at truckaboutshow.com. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash truckaboutshow if you would like to give us a little bit of financial support. We would love it very much. And it also supports our other podcast tuning in. We are covering the X-Files this week. We are talking about the episodes Shapes, which was not very good, and Darkness Falls, which was very good. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, we are on all those places. Trek About Show is our username. And as always, please leave us an iTunes review for Trek About. Now next week, it's two episodes that were technically part of the first season, but are actually in the second season. We're talking about the 37s, which apparently was actually supposed to be the season finale, and now it's the season opener, so go figure there. Okay. And Initiations, which is a Chakotay episode.